The following live recording of Swami Vivekananda Saraswati is presented by agamayoga.com. Okay, namaste to all of you and good evening. Tonight, I want to answer to a request which has been done, as I said before, restarting my series of comments on the Geranda Samhita. I wanted to make a few introductory evenings on some subjects which were a bit of some urgency for spiritual development, for spiritual practice. And one of this comes from a question which I've been asked not long time ago where somebody was asking me, <clears throat> in Agama you clearly divide the effects of spiritual practice, of yoga practice, in approximately four categories. We know that there exists a yoga which is meant to give health. And the correct question to ask in that situation is what is health because most most systems including the modern medical science defines what is disease but it lacks an actual definition of what is health what is our goal we are knowing that yoga can be used as a second headline for improvement of daily life and then we have relevant questions about that. What is the purpose of daily life? Where do we want to reach with the daily life? How to live daily life? On the third level, we say that the practice of yoga can generate paranormal abilities, exceptional capabilities of the mind. And then, of course, we can discuss about those. What are those paranormal abilities? what is true and what is legend, what has been verified by parapsychology and modern science until now, and all the things which are coming in that respect. And finally, the fourth peak of yoga, which many people do not hesitate to designate as the highest peak of yoga, the ultimate peak of yoga, is of course that yoga is used and can be used by people for a mysterious outcome which would be called spiritual realization. And then the correct question here is what is spiritual realization? Like I don't know if I want to reach perfect health, not absurdly, but I don't know what perfect health is. For some people perfect health can mean renouncing the doubts in your mind because that as long as you have unhealthy doubts in your mind a part of you which is your mental body is not healthy and therefore actually many people would say I would like to be healthy but if they would know what it involves many people would say well I don't know if I'm prepared to be healthy really because health can be a bigger mouthful than what we usually think in the same way, when we come to spiritual realization, many people say, I don't really have a good 
illustration of it, like you guys are talking about. It's a mixture of void, enlightenment, samadhi, this, that, mixing it up with Western mystical traditions and so on. What is it actually? So that I know if my heart longs for it truly, if I'm ready to do any radical effort towards that. That's why um, I leave Maha to clarify for you, and she did it many times, what is the holistic idea about health and what does it mean to aspire for a perfect health. And we are not talking about the use of the yoga in daily life and the meanings of the so-called daily life, which is impregnated by a lot of mysterious and transcendental things. So even daily life is not just a trite subject. I'm not going to mention paranormal things, but I'm going to focus a little bit on clarifying especially this concept of spiritual realization. Because with yoga, we are at the crossroads, at the intersection of many traditions, and this allows us to see more clearly what we are talking about. It's also, again, I'm saying, because I've noticed that people, having been through a fair amount of yoga courses here in Agama, they were incapable to unleash their Ishvara Pranidhana, to unleash their aspiration, because first of all, the target was not clear. And that's why I will try tonight to show this idea of spiritual realization which appeared in yoga and not only, basically in every healthy spiritual tradition on the face of this earth, it exists under one form or another, so that you can be oriented, so you, you can be directed, so you can think it over and see if this is your concern. Remember, not everybody in yoga feels ripe for all those four aspects. I've known people who are interested in yoga of the highest levels and their daily life was pretty much messy and quite out of control, I would say. I knew people who never ever for a minute had any longing about any paranormal development. Like they didn't want to experience telepathy, they didn't want to experience anti-gravitation. They did not want to try, like, they were simply not interested. They didn't have this <clears throat> orientation of their desire, of their interest. And that's why we know that spiritual realization, as, as I have seen often, it scares some people. Because some people think it's maybe too big, too much, too radical, uh, it's a bridge too far, like I probably can get it in this lifetime anyway, and then why should I bother wishing for something that I can't get? For many people, spiritual realization can sound religious, extreme, almost fanatical in some way, and that's why they wouldn't go there. That's why we know from the very beginning that not everybody who comes to yoga is interested in that. I'm sure that even in this hall tonight, there are some of you who want to take yoga more as a health healing 
process. There are some of you who want to reach nirvana in this lifetime, like Buddha. There are some of you who have other goals about yoga and the practice of it. And that's why it is important for me to bring it a bit closer to you, because this spiritual realization thing, it first starts by being scary for some people, precisely because it concerns some extreme aspects of the human being. And that was why, when I got asked by people about spiritual realization and realizing that some people actually did not even understand that, then how can you expect that people will have aspiration towards something which is not even clear to, the, to them as goal? That's why I thought that, again, while others may clarify health, and we can talk about yoga in daily life on other occasions and about paranormal, parapsychology, and likewise concepts, I would want to speak to define what is spiritual realization as seen from the standpoint of yoga and the yogis. And I would start by making the statement that according to metaphysics, according to spirituality, the goal of yoga is no different from the goal of life itself. Like the yogis don't think that people live their lives and they are all going into this or that. And the yogis are a bunch of weirdos who are topsy-turvy and they want something completely different. The funny thing is that it only seems that way because we sometimes don't, don't see further than the length of our own noses. We are very short-sighted. And on a very short scale, it appears that people have different goals. But ultimately, metaphysicians, and that's not only a statement of the yogis, that's a general planet Earth statement of metaphysicians. Metaphysicians tell us that the goal of life, the way life happens on this planet, is to produce the phenomenon of evolution, and therefore, inevitably, everybody evolves. We are looking around and we are seeing that this process of evolution is somehow inherent to what is happening. Like, if you would have the feeling that you as persons can never become anything better, can never evolve, if you would have the feeling that humanity as a whole does not progress, does not evolve, then existence would seem like a very dreary and useless thing because we'd look at it and we say, then why? We're just born here to spin in a circus, to spin in a wheel like a hamster, like a squirrel. You know, it's like, why are we running around? Like, if everything doesn't produce any effect either on the individual or on the society, on the group, then it seems to be totally senseless. We all know that's why even scientifically, even when people became ultra-rationalists and atheists, they still defined a theory of evolution. Well, at least biologically, the DNA of the dinosaurs became birds and <clears throat> mammals and out of the mammals the human being has emerged and if it continues like this 
we don't know what's going to come next in a million years or in a hundred million years from now. <coughs> and therefore, even at a biological level, scientists have felt that, you know, you need to have a process of transformation. Because otherwise, if everything would just stay same, same forever, it's like there is no dynamism that would create the most boring and the most painful image. That's why we all know that there exists a process of evolution and yoga is answering to this, which simply says either you guys are doing yoga or not, either the people of this planet Earth are doing yoga or not, either you did and you decided not to do anymore, or whichever the sequence is, everybody is still involved in a flow, in a process of evolution. And yoga is talking about the graduation day. Yoga at a spiritual level is talking about where does that process of evolution go. So ultimately, yoga is not creating another purpose. It does not hijack humanity or the individual from what's happening, trying to suggest to them some other thing. Like the whole humanity is naturally flowing into this or that, and the yogis say, no, let's go somewhere else. No. Actually, <clears throat> the metaphysics of the world agrees to the fact that everybody is going into enlightenment. The only problem being that everybody is going into enlightenment terribly slowly. That's the only problem, the speed of the process. The speed of the process is really, really slow. And then yoga simply says, instead of taking a million years to complete university, can't you just finish university in five years? Like, is there not a way to shorten that process? But yoga is not pointing somewhere else. It still keeps the same goal. And that is why <clears throat> everybody is asking themselves when thinking about evolution, either in a spiritual way or even in a biological way, if there is a transformation of the individual, of humanity, of the human race, and so on, DNA on this planet, we always ask ourselves to define what this transformation is. We define like what was before and what comes after. For example, if you ask scientists, they say, well, before we were gorillas or chimpanzees or baboons or whatever we were, somewhere thereabout, and after, we can only speculate. We don't know what's coming after. If there is one day going to exist a superhuman, a superhumanity, no science fiction speculates that because we eat less and less animal food, like we devour less and less, instead of having a jaw like the dogs, we are going to have a jaw which is smaller and smaller. So they predict that the chin of the human beings is going to get smaller and smaller and the mouth is going to become more and more weak because we won't need to go and bite bark from the trees or something like this. Our food will be more and more processed, more and more adapted, more and more scientifically prepared. Therefore, the mouth in a million years or in 10 million years is becoming almost obsolete. Eventually, we're going to feed ourselves with transfusions or 
tubing ourselves directly in the stomach or something like that. But on the other hand, the prefrontal cortex is growing. It's much bigger in the human being than in the monkeys, which are having a flattened forehead and kind of fallen back. And for the human beings, the forehead is bulging. And a bulging forehead is showing a great intelligence and it's giving a high facial angle, a very open, big facial angle. And that is a symbol of advancement. So if the humanity will advance, we suppose that the children of our children of our children are going to have more bulging foreheads and smaller mouths. So the head will become somehow like bigger in the upper part and smaller in the lower part or something like this. As opposite that when you see some of the communistic sculptures of the perfect proletarian hero from the Stalinistic years, it was always a man with huge jaws, a gorilla like of a man who could work like a tractor from morning till evening. The skull was rather narrow here because he didn't need to be intelligent. Stalin was intelligent enough for him. He didn't need to think, he just needed to work and to be, you know, to look like very masculine in this way. Like you can say, you know, when you study science fiction and these kinds of things, you can say even in a naive way, humanity is looking always at what was before, how would you define a human being that is inferior? See, this has become politically incorrect. We don't do it very much because it has generated some racistic techniques. There may have been people in history who said that the black people look more like chimpanzees than like angels, and therefore they must be inferior in one way or another. Because of such aberrations, because of such ridiculous things, the scientists have backed down a little bit on this kind of speculation because uh, they would encourage politically and socially all sorts of people who don't have a scientific spirit, a fair spirit in any way, and who would hijack this kind of information and use it in uh, deviant ways. But still, humanity asks themselves, like you yourselves can ask yourselves, both individually for me, who was I before? What am I going to be after? You can ask yourself in terms like, how was I when I was born as a child? And how am I going to be when I'll finish this life? Is there a transformation? Is there any lesson learned? There are people who live a lifetime and in the end of the lifetime, they become more cynical, more skeptical, and because of this, less trusting, more wicked, more selfish. And then you can ask yourself, you know, you live the life, and when you are born, you are canned. When you are a child, you are candid and loving, and when you were 60 or 70 or 80, you became a selfish bastard, an animal. Now, is that evolution, or that is that a temporary in evolution, a temporary devolution instead of being an evolution. That's why there are many legitimate questions in which we mix the biological with the spiritual, but we always know that somewhere, somehow, there exists a process. You know, like, were the people of the antiquity, either we're talking about the ancient Chinese or Romans or Greeks or Jews or whatever they were, were the ancient people more evolved than us or not?
how would we measure that there are so many criteria and of course it's impossible to say you know like the Spartans took any malformed kid and threw it off a cliff and they took all the elderly people who couldn't take care of themselves and threw them off the same cliff were the Spartans more evolved than the modern-day Americans or not no is social kindliness a sort of evolution or does it simply make us carry on our shoulders all the cripples and all the incapables and all the autistics and diabetics and so on and it actually is a yoke which is going to break our necks sooner or later all these things I don't want to give you an answer about them I just want to show that humanity does face these questions very often and we give various people various groups give various answers to them but behind all of them irrespectively of what those answers are there is a concern of everybody towards development towards progress towards evolution everybody wants to know that if we came to have mobile telephones unlike 20 years ago then at least those mobile telephones are going to make us progress it's a sort of an electronic telepathy that we all have now you can call from the wilderness of the planet into some other wilderness of the planet on the other side of the earth and talk in real time just by having a little gadget uh, in your hand therefore um, this concept is very very important and um, people imagine this evolution one way or another no the Christianity rather imagines evolution as a linear process we started from Adam and Eve which were pure and candid they tasted of the original sin they became mortals and started earning their daily bread with the sweat of their brow and eventually Jesus came and showed the path to redemption and humanity can redeem itself and you can become immortal again you can reach eternal life you can turn back to God in a certain way this evolution looks like a circle like where we try to go is where we have been already we are trying to become like Adam and Eve but after having gone like the prodigal son through the whole circle of manifestation so there is a bit of a circular image in this image of evolution like we are coming back home and at the same time there is a linear process God has created the world about 7,000 years ago Jesus came about 2,000 years ago he is going to return soon and then he is going to make the head count in the end of it and who passed passed and who didn't pass is molten back into the original materia prima and is going to be recycled and because you didn't make it to the salvation threshold and thus um, we have different images of this history like a line the Buddhists for example often um, imagine or describe the wheel of Dharma the development of the human being of life in this universe like a wheel um, I'm not going to speak too much about this because some of these things are uh, discussed in our um, metaphysical workshop but anyhow when you look at the history rather as a circle like coming back to something which you once had then automatically it gives us the idea that whatever is after 
is a little bit like whatever something which was before. It is interesting that one of the greatest Sanskritologists of the 20th century wrote a very innovative and nice book of yoga, which was first written in French. And when they translated it in English, uh, they changed the title. But the title in French was Yoga Méthode de Réintégration, like Yoga Method of Reintegration. Like you have to reintegrate yourself into what? Reintegrate. It's not a method of integration. It's a method of reintegration. You have to get back into the original oneness, into the original harmony. And that simply says what's in the end of the road, it's something which we had in the beginning and we lost it. There's like a nostalgia. Even Osho Rajneesh in one of his discourses, making an analogy between this and materialistic science, he said everybody is talking about a golden beginnings, that in the beginning there was a golden age, and so on and so forth. And he said psychologists are saying that this is just a psychological reflection in your primitive brain of the time which you spend in the womb of your mother, where you were protected, you were given food, everything was generally comfortable, and so on. So that was the golden age. The golden age is not a really historical time which happened. The golden age is a metaphor for a stage of your own development. And like that's why the universe is described in the beginning like an egg, like an embryo. There's a golden embryo, the Hiranyagarbha, and so on. And that Hiranyagarbha is a reference to the primeval happiness in your brain to the bliss in your fetal brain, and everybody wants to go back. Everybody wants to reach peace. Everybody that Vishnu is floating on a snake on the primordial ocean. That's just you floating with a placenta in the amniotic fluid of your mother. For you, the universe was floating on the primordial waters, which were nothing else but the womb of your mother. I'm not saying that he is right in the meaning that that's what it is. But in yoga, we know the validity of the principle, which is called as above, so below. Of course, the human being and the personal biological history of the human being can only repeat the history of the universe. We are a copycat of the universe. The fact that I was born in an amniotic fluid floating in it, it does not deny the myth of Vishnu floating on the primordial waters. It actually enforces it because it says, as it happened to you, so it happens at a macrocosmic scale. And that's why all the human beings know, either we talk about Adam and Eve living in paradise and then losing it foolishly because of disobedience and lack of humility and all that. Or we are talking about the famous idea of paradise lost. Uh, uh, one of the 20th century monuments which generated the name of Shangri-La, which is used today for chains of hotels and expensive resorts and many other things, and Shangri-La remains like a name of paradise lost, is exactly the book and a couple of movies which were made after it, Paradise Lost, in which paradise is a sort of a copycat of Shambhala. It's an oasis in the Himalayan mountains where the climate is perfect, there's no conflict, 
everything is spiritual, pure, wonderful. People live almost forever and they have time to perfect their spirituality and their wisdom and this. And even in that paradise, there is one of the women who wants to run away from it. Like people are getting bored even of paradise when they are a bit demonic and when their needs are not the needs of paradise. When their resonance doesn't fit, even paradise, people want to run away from it. And that was paradise lost. Now like we all have a sort of nostalgia for a lost paradise. I'm thinking in one of the next um, satsangs, perhaps in the very next one, to bring you the story about Kali Yuga and this theory which exists in metaphysics about the yugas and the cycles of evolution on planet Earth, to show you more about this because it's one of the very thrilling aspects from metaphysics. But until then, uh, remember that we always ask ourselves, what comes after? Like we human beings in this life, in the end of this life, after another 200 lifetimes, what is coming after? What is going to happen after? We can create paradigms. We can create our own models. No, like humanity seems, according to what you are taught in yoga, we teach you what we know from the yogis of India and Tibet, that humanity seems to be a machinery which is dominant on Svadhisthana chakra. But hey, there are seven chakras. So can we conceive that in a million years, humanity will climb at least to Manipura? Can we conceive that in another million years, humanity will climb on Anahata? And like this, humanity will go for a number of years, spending a lot of time on each chakra. This is a form of evolution. I don't know if you realize. In the moment when you create a system like the chakras, where Sahasrara is the top of the mountain, then automatically you've set a goal. You've set a vector. There is a flag on the top of the mountain and you have to conquer the flag. You have to grab that flag. And therefore the whole game becomes a process. Like, I don't know how long it will take for me or for us to go to Manipura, to go to Anahata, to go to Vishuddha, to go to Ajna. But obviously we are given a process with stages. And there is a finality in this process. So even the existence of the chakras simply says, okay, when are we going to move ahead? Like at least now we can say what's after. After Svadhisthana comes Manipura or maybe Anahata or maybe Ajna directly. But there comes something else. I already have a feeling that we are not going to become more and more Svadhisthanistic and more and more Muladharistic after that. It's obvious for everybody. It's common sense. That's why when we speak it to you, you don't even contest it because it's common sense. Your subconscious mind resonates with it. These are archetypal things. You feel instinctively that it's right, that it has to be that way, and that if we put it the other way around, it would sound like it makes no sense. It's absurd. It doesn't correspond to the way reality feels. And that's why this idea of the process of evolution is very, very important. Again, we can describe it in many ways. And... Uh, the point of all this is that whichever way you describe it, there is always a final goal. It may be that things are a little bit like when you go in the mountains and you see the top of a mountain and you say, that's what I have to get today. And actually, when you get to that top of the mountain behind it, 
it continues and it's a much bigger mountain. And then you say, oops, tomorrow I have to climb some more. Like maybe you didn't see all the whole picture. That's why in spirituality we cannot say that we are always told clearly what the final goal is, but we are always told at least what the next visible goal is. Where can you get from here, from where you are? As you are going to see, there are opinions in the metaphysical yogis that sometimes the human being cannot take more than something. If somebody would make you carry 2,000 kilos on your back, you know that your spine can hold only 1,000. And therefore, 2,000 is simply too much, and it's going to squash you. It's going to break your back. And that's why, if you want to get to carry 2,000 kilos, it won't happen in this body. You need to get another DNA, another body, in another life, and then that thing will become possible. In a similar way, many yogis meditating, they have said, you know, that the human body has its limitations. It's a frame, it's a DNA, it's a machinery. And like every limited created thing, it has its limits and it sets limits upon us. In the beautiful documentary, The Yogis of Tibet, there is an interview with a Tibetan Lama who spent most of his life in meditation, one of the champions of meditation, and who lives somewhere in India, in the, in the Tibetan communities. And this guy, it was a long story, I'm not going to tell you all the details of it, it's a very colorful story there, but eventually they take an interview, and never in his life did he give an interview. And even now when he speaks, he talks to the cameraman like to a sort of a bug. Like, he's not happy to give an interview, and he basically says, whatever I've done, you can't understand even the zilch of it, and you are just asking me savant questions, and actually you are a fool, and you are wasting my time and my energy, and your time and your energy, because you are ambitiously trying to ask me some big questions. And among others, this man, who was very respected by the Dalai Lama and asked for support, you know, like being acknowledged that he was not a madman of any kind, this old man eventually takes, and you can see that in a certain way he's like, you know, I don't know how to tell you this. And he speaks into the camera, and he says, you, to the cameraman, to the interviewer, he says, you see me as a human being. But he says, from where I sit right now, it's long, long time that I don't belong to that category anymore. Like he says, internally, I have stopped being a human being long time ago. I still have the body of a human being, and I was just about to drop it, actually, and to move to the next stage. And because the Dalai Lama asked me to stay a little bit more, then he said, okay, I'll live a hundred years. You know, it's like, for him, it was easy to decide, die today or live a hundred years from where he was sitting. But he says, my internal perception about myself, I'm not a human being. Like I'm looking at you, the cameraman, and you belong to a different kingdom of nature than me. We are not the same. And I used to be like you, but I did something which pushed me forward to the point where, you know, only I only look like you, but I definitely don't feel like you. While for some people this can be extremely scary, for some people uh, hearing it and people say, oh, I don't want to become like that old man, definitely. For some people, it can be exactly the ingredient missing, saying, yes, you know, 
I'm fed up with the human condition. Humanity is boring and inferior, and I'd actually like to see a brave new world, another humanity, something else. No, because my fellow men, when I open the news channels, they generally disgust me, they sadden me. There's nothing noble around here, or so little of it that it's really not worth it to stay around just for that. And that's why I'm, I'm saying that we need to look at this finality. We need to, like there is definitely a transformation of the human being, and it means much more than the physical body. We have to get out of this biological fixation and to look at the big picture. And that's why I'm going to give you a few hints about the spiritual realization because most of the systems, they tell us you can get there. If Buddha got there, if Rumi got there, if Francis of Assisi got there, then you can get there. And the question is, what is that there? Is it desirable? Is it so desirable that I should put it on my to-do list in this life? Or is it actually sounding pretty weird? And, you know, like I, I'm happy to do yoga, to be fit, to feel good, and to live a long, healthy life. That sounds like a, already yoga is splendid if it can do that. And I'm pleased enough with that. But if it can go beyond that already, like, I don't know. Do I want to be that thing or do I not want to be that thing? I, to, under, to make you understand what the yogi said, therefore I would like to first of all remind to you what some traditions, I'm not going to go through every single tradition, there are similarities and not, but looking through some of the traditions which at least came close to yoga in one way or another, and to, it's exactly like we look at a mountain seen from different angles. Mount Everest doesn't look the same seen from four different angles, from four different cardinal directions. Exactly in the same way, spiritual realization, when you look at it from one vantage point and another vantage point, you see other challenges and other benefits of it. And that's why I would like to share this so that we can get a more global understanding. Because as yogis, as I said before, we are at the crossroads of many traditions. As yogis, nobody prevents you from trying Jewish prayer or Dervish Sufi dance or uh, Buddhist meditations or Vedantic uh, practices. Or So we can approach spirituality freely with a freedom of spirit <clears throat> in so many ways and then spiritual realization on different paths is showing us new and new dimensions. For example, starting with Buddhism, perhaps because we live in a Buddhist environment dominantly here, the Buddhist definition of spiritual realization, one of the definitions at least, is nirvana, which is a word which originally meant coming from Pali and then translated, it meant extinction. It's a word which is used for blowing off a candle. So Buddha says, let me take you to nirvana where you are going to be blown off like a candle. Which for some people is not very encouraging because it sounds like a death, like an annihilation. And it's obvious that Buddha cannot be so enthusiastic about a form of self-annihilation slash spiritual suicide of some sort. Like you won't enjoy apples, 
you won't enjoy sunsets, you won't read books, because you will be extinguished, like a flame. It's like, many people would say, you know what, can we wait with that thing for a gazillion years? You know, it's like, because it doesn't sound like I want that. It, it doesn't sound appealing. Buddha was a very, very skillful spiritual teacher, but when it comes to wrapping his merchandise in a, a good marketing wrap, he's pretty bad at that because he addresses to some people who want to finish it off. Like if you have lived long in life and if you are dizzy of having spun in this cage for centuries over centuries, maybe you want to finish it off. Well, instead of slicing your veins, you could have nirvana. No, it's like it's a, it's a spiritual way of cutting your veins. Just get out of here and never come back. Eliminate every single desire and all that. While obviously that's not what Buddha proposes because Buddha himself is a beautiful human being. Even if he stopped being a human being, still his interface as a human being is exceptional. He is compassionate. He is the one who inspires so many civilizations and cultures in Asia towards compassion, non-violence, spirituality, aspiration, purification, and other things like that. And therefore, it can't be only this that Buddha is preaching. If you are bored of life, there is a way of getting out of it. If you are tired of carrying this yoke, then there is a way of stepping out of this game. That's too simplistic. Because any tree is known by the fruits, and the fruits of Buddha are not only this. So we know that Buddha wanted to say much more, and in different places he did say. I, I want to say from the beginning that what Buddha said is not at all abnormal in Asian spirituality, and even many ascetic yogis literally shared this view of desires. Because when Buddha says extinction, he means extinction of desire. But Really, there are many people even among you, even among those of you who have spiritual plans in this life, that if you say, I'm going to have no desires, I'm going to a place where I'm not smiling, I'm not crying, I have no ups and no downs, it's a total equanimity and dispassion, detachment, and in that state, no, I'm not laughing, I'm not crying, I'm without desires, without attraction and without repulsion, without rejection, then many people would say, gosh, it sounds like a zombie to me. It sounds like somebody lobotomized you and you are just living like this and you almost cannot enjoy and cannot cry and cannot this and cannot that. And the question is, do I want to live the next 50, 100 million years of my existence like that? Like, is there, because the spiritual realization is not properly explained, sometimes it appears even dubious in its desirability. Like, is that the most outstanding thing that can be said about it? Many, many yogis, especially non-tantric yogis, had exactly this image. There is a, a wonderful paragraph from Swami Shivananda, which I read sometimes in my August retreat in the Awakening of the Spirit retreats, which I hold usually in August, where there is a chapter in one of his books. In the old days, it was called The Practice of Yoga. Then they changed the name of it. And it is called Miseries of Mundane Existence. 
And Swami Shivananda is an extremely sharp and critical spirit. And he makes a radiography of life, of the society, of the human existence, where he simply puts splashes directly on in two pages all the miseries, you know. He shows that everybody so desperately clings to life with their nails and teeth. And ultimately, when you look at what you are clinging to, it's misery over misery over misery over misery. Limitation over limitation over limitation. Pain over pain over pain. Like Buddha, when he saw old age, illness, death. Somebody could have told them, but Buddha, there is also sunsets. There are also blowjobs. There are also a lot of other delightful things. You know, why do you look only at illness and old age and this? Life is 50-50 ultimately. No, Buddha looked only at the miserable, painful part of life. And he said, either I manage to find the solution to the pains of existence, or if not, the whole thing is desperate. The whole thing is terrible. That's why uh, many, when you read Shivananda, Shivananda is like the son of Buddha. He writes like a disciple of Buddha. He's, and not, he's not the only one. He took it from Shankaracharya and other great philosophers of India who simply said, even if life has a beautiful part, let's focus a little bit on the painful one because it's like you need a tooth pulled out. You know, there is a painful surgery there. You need to go a little bit deep into this because uh, it's going to make you evaluate things in a very, very different way. And thus, to make the long story short, um, of course, this idea that desires, that spiritual realization is a state where the desires have disappeared. And of course, philosophically, we can say there is an Indian proverb which says the only rich person is the one who is poor in desires. That's what it is to be rich, to be poor, in the, to have no desires. Because if you are wealthy, but you have also a wealth of desires, you will feel like poor. Because the desires will always run ahead of you. And you will always want more, more, more. It's like the title of a James Bond movie, I think, which said, the earth is not enough. For some people, the earth is not enough. Like that quote about Alexander, that he reached to the Indian Ocean, and then he started weeping. Because he didn't know geography. If he would have turned left, he would have gone to China and screwed the Chinese, perhaps, also. But because he reached to the Indian Ocean, and then he started crying. He said, there is no more land to conquer. Alexander has reached the end of the world. And then he became dejected and started drinking and taking drugs. And in a couple of years died because there was no more carrot in front of Alexander. Alexander had nothing more to do. His adventure, he thought, out of ignorance, of course, was over. And thus, uh, desire is indeed the source of suffering to a large extent. And eliminating desire is a very worthy thing. But nevertheless, for many people, it sounds scary. You know, it's like, I don't want to not have desire. I would feel like so very dead. Of course... We have to mention at this juncture, while again, the definition is not clear, this nirvana doesn't tell us much until now. I'm going to clarify quite a few things. There are also many paths in Buddhism, and therefore there are different ways of extinguishing desire. 
Like for example, there exists a tantric form of Buddhism in Tibet, the Vajrayana. And in that form, sometimes tantric technology is used in which the desires are exhausted by blowing them off, by expansion, not by contraction. Exactly as to put off the fire in a petrol well, in an oil well, you put a barrel of nitroglycerin in the middle of that fire and you detonate it. And the explosion is so gigantic that it consumes all the oxygen 30 meters around and the fire goes off because it has no oxygen for a couple of seconds and it simply can't go on burning. So you can put fire out by fire. You can put desire out by desire. That's the tantric approach to it. Instead of starving the desire, you can simply max it out and then it blows into pieces like an oil well fire that it has been put off through itself. And that's why, of course, uh, don't think that this state of desirelessness, when we think about how to get there, there are many paths, and some of these paths are diametrically opposite to each other, like what you are told not to do on one of them, you are exactly told to do on another one of them. And that's why, again, when we look at it, we have to see, like Buddha tells us, some very hard to fathom thing. The Buddha says, before I reached enlightenment, I saw 10,000 lifetimes. I saw all my previous lives. Enlightenment is something which surpasses all the lifetimes which you have had. That's arguable, right? Because many people don't believe in reincarnation and they don't know what to make out of it. For many people say, you mean that I should sacrifice my life and run out in the jungle like Buddha? just to be able to get somewhere where I have no desires and when I see all my previous lives, I must admit I'm not so curious to see all my previous lives. Like, that's not really a prime priority in my life. And it sounds all like still very unappealing. Then Buddha said, after he saw his lifetimes, then he got tempted by Mara, the demonic force, which was tempting him to get temporal power and all sorts of other temptations, pleasures, satisfactions, and so on, and Buddha rejected it. And Buddha went through a couple of more processes, like when he touched the earth to kind of ground himself back to where he started from, and eventually he reached nirvana. And when he reached nirvana, the statement is like, now I have no more karma, now I am not going to be incarnated again, or at least not in this earth, not on the earth, not in the physical world. And for many people, this, some of these things sound interesting, tantalizing, like, okay, so there is a way to never getting reincarnated again. Everybody gets reincarnated as crazy, and they can't stop it. And then Buddha says, you can stop it, you can end it. Well, this motivates perhaps 5% of the spiritual seekers. There will be a number of spiritual seekers who will say, for me, this is enough. I've heard enough. If that can be done, that's exactly my goal. I'm willing to go the full Monty for that one. The fact that I will remember all my lifetimes until now, it's a sort of a bonus. It's good to know where I come from so we know what the final destination is. 
having the beginning, you have the end, and so on and so forth. But otherwise, for many people, this extinguishing is a motivation. There are people who simply say, I want rest. It's like the universe is a world of change, 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 and it never stops. It goes on forever. Shakti dances like crazy forever. And if you ever want to reach rest, there's only one point where that rest is in the eye of the cyclone, in the middle of everything. You go there, you'll experience your well-deserved rest. This is how this, this can be motivating for some people, and it's one aspect of spiritual realization, that there exists an existential state which is without desires, which is without ups and downs, which is equanimity, which is awareness which is knowledge of the past, present, and future, which is knowledge of the previous life, which is extinction of desire, which is stopping of the reincarnation process. Is there more to it? Yes, but many traditions don't mention it. Other traditions will mention it, depending, to, on, on, to, depending, to the, depending on the people to whom the message is addressed, because different people are clicking to different things. I know people who click very much to this. All I want is eternal rest. I want to rest forever and ever. Enough is enough. Then this works. Also in Buddhism, this aspect of nirvana extinction is sometimes brought in other ways. The word Buddha, Buddhi, which was given to Buddha himself, Buddha the enlightened one, is actually the name of the planet Mercury in Vedic astrology. And in astrology, it refers to Mercurian energy, and it refers to knowledge. It refers to enlightenment. That's why in English, when you say, enlighten me, it doesn't mean always give me the state of samadhi. It means inform me, give me the knowledge about this subject. And that's why... Enlightenment, even in Sanskrit, Buddha, Baudha, it is actually a word which comes from uh, enlightenment as knowledge. Like Buddha is the enlightened one, and that's why he is called Buddha, the enlightened one, literally. And he, and the state of realization, his state of realization is called enlightenment, because obviously it results in a knowledge. You may go into extinction. You may lose all your desires. You may reach to the end of your chain of reincarnations on the face of this earth. And a few other things which you are involved in, I'm not going to repeat. But also, another aspect of it is the aspect of enlightenment. That you know there is a knowledge. And this aspect of knowledge is very, very significant from a certain standpoint. Because this point is concerning the aspect of meaning of life. This, what, this was the statement of a great Indian mystic who compared life, and we use that example in our What is Yoga lecture, where he compares it and he says it's like an envelope which is blank, and you mail it in the mailing system. And he said, how can you live your life properly if you don't know where you come from, where you go to, then how can you take decisions? Should you be moral? or it doesn't matter actually. Should you be vegetarian, or it doesn't matter actually. Every decision 
is taken is an informed or ought to be an informed decision. And that's why enlightenment is the only thing which can make you take informed decisions. So there is an aspect of nirvana which is not defined by the word nirvana, by the word Buddha, and which represents a sort of omniscience, a sort of deep pervading knowledge which gives the knowledge of all things. And some people don't look into it. There are people, when I was young, I remember I was telling to my yoga teacher, I'm completely fascinated by knowledge. I, being a Mercurian person, resonated very much to this aspect of knowledge. I did not want to disappear or to extinguish myself. That was not among my aspirations. But I definitely want to have, wanted to have all the knowledge that a human being can have and more than that. I was hungry for knowledge. And this hunger for knowledge satisfies again other people while other people will say, no, as I told you, I'm tired. I've been spinning around for so long time I'm not even hungry for knowledge anymore. Listen to me. All I want is to disappear. All I want is to rest. I want to go in the womb of Brahma and sleep forever and ever. I don't like, I don't want. So for some people, knowledge is tiresome. For some people, annihilation is scary. Everybody needs to see a different facet of what this enlightenment is. This enlightenment is called in some branches of Buddhism, awakening, suggesting that the human being is ignorant because the human being lives in a sort of a sleep. And that is very stimulating for some people. It was Gurdjieff who used this simile and he said the human being is a robot and everybody goes around sleeping. Everybody is a sleepwalker. And if you want to live for true, the first thing is to awaken yourself, especially in Zen Buddhism. This meaning was there, and that's why many Zen Buddhist lineages are separate in Buddhism. They are creating a flavor of its own, grafted on the Japanese spirit and psychology. You get this Buddhism of awakening, maybe of nirvana for some, but for others, it's like, I want to live, I want to do martial arts, I want to have a stupid sense of humor. I want to know, like many of these Buddhist Zen masters were a bit crazy. No? And, but I want to be awakened. I want to live in a state of wakefulness. And then if that dictates me that I should take the big stick and beat the shit out of them or make silly jokes and laugh my head off, that doesn't matter. But I am awake. I'm going around making silly jokes. And everybody can say this guy is stupid or a little bit crazy, but I'm the only awake person in the village. I'm the only person who actually sees what's right. So for some people, this aspect is significant, that the spiritual realization, as they said, it means satori, as they called it in Zen, which means a direct vision. Satori is compared with the parable of the blind man who suddenly is given sight. And how if you have been blind all your life, how can you describe green? When you have never seen green, you maybe saw it inside your head, but you don't know that the thing which you saw inside your head is what outside people call green. So you've never seen green, you've never seen blue, you've never seen red. Suddenly you open your eyes and you see it, and the beautiful sunset is in front of you, 
or a beautiful silk tanka is in front of you, and then everything makes sense in a totally different way. That's what Zen Buddhism says. Spiritual realization, forget about annihilation and stopping the chain of reincarnations and getting knowledge. Spiritual realization is about waking up and living a genuine life. It's about opening your eyes, opening your third eye and seeing everything to which you are blind before. And then existence is something completely different than that. That's why this, uh, this point of awakening of knowledge is very, very beautiful. Even the fundamental tantric text Vigyana Bhairava has a beautiful analogy to it, which I'm going to quote for you. Like, this is how Kashmirian yogis have seen spiritual realization. This is what it means for them. If you can catch, it's a parable, it's an analogy, but it's a beautiful analogy. They said, human beings can be compared with humans that sit on the earth and they look towards heaven, but between the humans and the heaven, exactly approximately like the clouds, there exists a multi-layer level of clouds, and for more facility, because clouds are a bit fluffy, foggy, imagine these clouds more like a sort of kaleidoscopic cuts. Imagine them like a military camouflage tent, a sort of a network which is triangles, rectangles, different colors, and so on. So imagine that there is a net, and that this net moves and undulates, and it's not only one. There are nets over nets over nets, so when you look at the sky, you never see the sky. You see all sorts of shapes and things which are coming from some undulating nets. And that's your astral body. That's your etheric body. That's your mental body. Which means you always see your desires, your thoughts, your sensations, your energies, a lot of things. And even when you say, who am I? You say, well, I don't know, but I am a very critical human being. But you are critical because you are born in the astrological sign of the Scorpio or Virgo, and if in the next life you will be born in the astrological sign of the Libra, suddenly you won't be critical anymore. There will be other characteristics, which means your critical ability is transient. It's grafted on you, and it is not you. It's a characteristic which comes with the astrological sign, and the astrological signs come and go. They change, and therefore, I'm looking and I'm seeing my criticism or my analytical spirit or my this or my that but it's not me I never see really the reality of me or the reality of consciousness and Vigyana Bhairava continues this analogy he, she, Vigyana Bhairava says human beings that are in a state of inferiority and desire and agitation are looking at the sky through a network which is very dense and very complicated and constantly agitated and human beings who meditate and who give up a little bit of their attachments, they start looking through networks which are more and more sparse, more and more thinner, more and more thin, and more and more big cuts, like simplified. And that's why when you look, sometimes some of those cuts superimpose, and like in a telescope effect, you see through them, and suddenly you see sky blue. Suddenly you see the blue of the sky. Therefore, you look at yourself, you look at your mind, you look at life, and when your mind is calm and purified enough, 
suddenly there are moments where you see what has always been there. They say the funny thing is that you could have never seen all these networks if it wasn't for the sky, because the sky is blue and luminous and it shines, and that's why those networks, if, it would, if the sky would go pitch black, the networks would go pitch black and they wouldn't see anything. So actually you saw those networks because of the sky, but you never really realize the sky unless the day comes where you look right and then there is a moment of breakthrough. And then you realize, wait, 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 all this is just some moving stuff. And the more you simplify the mind and the more you simplify the desires and the agitation, the more you start seeing the sky. And if you have, Vigana Bhairava says, if you have seen it once, then you know what you are looking for. Then probably you will see it the second time and the third time because then you will be like a hunter. You will always be hunting for it. You will always be waiting for it because now you know you've seen that paradise. You've seen that special thing. This vision from Kashmiri Shaivist is very close to this vision of awakening, of Satori, that the whole, it's a visual expression and it can work auditorily or kinesthetically, but it basically tells us that spiritual realization is like a knowledge. It's like a breakthrough. It's like realizing something which was always there, but most of the time hidden to you, and which is the essence of real, which makes everything possible which is the only thing which makes sense. Because as the Tibetan yogis say, uh, uh, with a view to this analogy, they say if our emotions and mind and sensations and everything is like clouds on the sky, we all know that the sky is never going to go away, while the clouds sometimes do. So if you, if you are lucky, if you are persevering, you can catch a big gap in the clouds and you can even catch full clear days where you look and you, you see the sky directly. The sky is the only thing which is 24-7, is the only thing which is permanent and eternal. That's what we are looking. Of course, we are not talking about the sky in itself. I hope you all realize that this is a metaphor. It's a parable for describing how the spiritual person is looking for this awakening, for this satori, that you are following the advice given by your guru in practicing some techniques, in focusing in a certain way, knowing that sooner or later, either you are focusing on your breath or you are focusing on your crown chakra or there are a hundred ways of focusing, you are going to get one of these breakthroughs and then probably a second one and then even faster a third one and then if you persevere more and more, more and more often. These are a few images about spiritual realization coming from this environment and I'm going on purpose to jump to one which is very different to see that different aspects of it are emphasized. For example, in Christianity, the spiritual realization means saintliness. The saints are the ones who allegedly have reached this acme, this uh, uh, climax, this supreme experience, this peak experience and therefore it's expressed more like who are the saints, unlike the Buddhas. The saints are human beings that have been divinized, sanctified, graced, transformed, transmuted almost alchemically and transformed into something else. The same is valid partly 
when you look at the prophets, like the Jewish prophets of the Old Testament, or when you look at some of the Sufi saints and Islamic saints, generally in, in Judaism, Christianity, Islam, there is a sort of a common line of thought because they all come from the same origins. And that is why um, in Christianity, you see, nobody says you are going to get annihilated. Or nobody really says that the saints have no desires because the saints have the desire to help everybody and to be compassionate and loving. And that is not really on the dish in some of the other exemplifications. For example, in Christianity, even spiritual realization is presented as a two-step process. Many of you are not aware, but Christianity doesn't speak about one realization, but about two. The first one is called salvation, and it means to reach with your consciousness at the level of Anahata Chakra, and in the end of this Kali Yuga, to be able to go into a further style of development, of evolution. And then there is the stage called perfection. And if you reach perfection, in the end of this Kali Yuga, you don't need to go anywhere anymore because you've done all the steps already. That's why Christianity says in the end of this Kali Yuga, some people will reach perdition, some people will reach salvation, some people will reach perfection. And these are different levels of realization which need to be decided. Salvation is Anahata Chakra, perfection is the crown chakra already, and that corresponds to the more Buddhist, yogic, and other ideals. Therefore, in Christianity, when people are told that this is spiritual realization, people are told about reaching eternal life. People are not told that you are going to be cut off and stop existing. It's going to be like a switch off, and you will not exist. People are told you are going to reach eternal life. Eternal life, it means you are going to exist consciously, deliberately, positively, and in a very fortunate and happy way for a duration which is equivalent to eternity in a place. You are going to reach eternal life in the kingdom of God. You are going to reach grace. You are going to be graced, which means you are going to be in a state of communion. Many people say, don't you get bored of eternal life? But eternal life, by its definition, it's a communion with something which is beyond time. So there is no time in the eternal life. That's why it's called eternal, precisely because it cannot be measured in millions or billions or anything. It's outside of time. And because of this, the only thing which is surviving outside of time is the Supreme Spirit, is the Absolute. And therefore, you cannot be in eternal life or in the kingdom of heaven in time for a thousand years. That doesn't exist. That's why this state of spiritual realization as presented in Christianity, it's a state of communion. You somehow must become one with the timeless. You have to be of the same nature because otherwise you will never resist in timelessness. You are not compatible for that level of existence. Therefore, this Christian model of spiritual realization emphasizes power. You are sitting by the right hand of God forever and ever. It emphasizes knowledge because God is omniscient and you are, we are praying to the saints like Saint Francis or Saint Basil, help me. Like how should Saint Basil help you if he is not almighty? 
and omniscient. Therefore, we assume that if somebody is a saint, that person has access to omniscience, to almightiness, and is therefore in a state of grace and communion. This state of, uh, it, 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 imp it impl implies, it involves a state of influence and many other human ideals. Like we pray to Saint Basil because Saint Basil has got the year of Jesus. Saint Basil has done so much austerity and conquered saintliness that Jesus admires him. And when Saint Francis comes to Jesus and says, I have a friend down there who is asking for cessation of his disease, then Jesus says, okay, you know, because you ask me, okay, you know, like it's a sort of an influence of some sort, which Buddha doesn't speak much. Buddha doesn't say, it's funny that Buddha says you are going to reach extinction, there's going to be cessation of all desires and everything, but then people pray to Buddha. Buddha, give us good crops. Buddha, Buddha, give us healthy children. Buddha, make us wealthy, and so on. But that means that either people pray absurdly, which would have disappeared in a few hundred years because of its absurdity, or some people got something back out of that, which means the Buddhas of the past, present, and future, they also have a power. They have a knowledge, although we say they extinguished. It's nirvana. If they don't have any desire, and if they are so 100% detached, then why would they listen to me praying to them for help? When they could simply say, well, I've done my job, now you do yours. No, like, I don't care, you don't care. You know, I'm looking at you, you are looking at me. I'm detached, let's see what you do. No, but no, the, and therefore it means that we are being told from the Christian environment that this state of spiritual realization, it does involve power, influence, knowledge, and a few other characteristics. <coughs> and uh, therefore, uh, very often, actually, this Christian model of the enlightenment doesn't speak very much about the metaphysical things. It doesn't. It says you are going to be the kingdom of heaven and sing praise to God. And many people say, let's go to hell because maybe they have brothels and casinos and it's going to be a little more tempting down there. Like heaven sounds okay for a hundred years, but then it sounds getting boring and at your nerves, which is of course not the case because Christian folklore has forgotten to tell you about the metaphysical implications and it's speaking only about the human angle to it. Like you want eternal life, you want happiness, you want devotion, you want uh, omnipotence, and you want to sit by the right hand of God, that's where it is. But that's only one way of looking upon it. And many metaphysical people will, will scoff with disdain, like this sounds like so primitive. No, it's not primitive, it's the same reality, but it's described for the interest of a different auditorium. It's described for the psychology of another group of people who are interested more in this as a carrot to take them to, the, to chase the rainbow. In Hindu spirituality, where most of yoga comes from, the view about spiritual realization is a view about freedom. They are not so much interested to be in love with God and in favor of God. They are not so much interested in disappearing 
or reaching some metaphysical void, they want to be free. For them, the spiritual realization is often called liberation or moksha, mukti in Sanskrit. Like everything I want is to become 100% free, even without God. I don't care if there is God or not, as they say in Vedanta, all I want is to be totally free. Freedom. And there are people who say freedom or death. I really want to be free. I don't want to have power. I don't want to intercede for the mortals to God. I'm not really interested in too much compassion because I've never been very compassionate. But I would like to be free. Really free, metaphysically free. So this speaks to another group of people, to another group of souls. This freedom, this liberation which they speak about, it starts from the typical Hindu Vedic idea that we are prisoners, that we do not really choose. In the modern New Age environment, there is a lot of soothsaying and ego pampering where people say, well, if I chose my body and I chose to come in this incarnation, Hindu mysticism says 99.99999% you did not choose. You are just soothsaying yourself just because you want to feel good. Your ego wants to feel good. This is just pampering of your own ego because nobody chooses. Krishna chose. Somebody who was born from Shambhala chose. Ramakrishna perhaps chose. But all the other fellows around here, including many people who reached enlightenment in their respective lifetimes, when they were born, they had no power to choose. To choose means freedom. Only the free person has a choice. And the spirits that are in samsara, they don't have any choice. Tibetan Book of the Dead says, you see two people having sex, you see many human couples having sex, and you get attracted to one of them, and those will become your parents. And you say, I chose those. No, you didn't. You got horny at one of them, and that's not a choice. That's an instinct. You think that you chose, but somebody who zooms back the camera sees that you didn't choose at all. You were manipulated. It's exactly like it starts raining, and you get indoors, and you say, I chose to get indoors. No, really, why don't you stay outside in the rain then? You know, and get soaking wet. You can pretend you chose, but the truth is you had no choice, really. The, uh, the other alternative would have been much, much worse. And therefore, you haven't been given a choice. You are just guided through a labyrinth, and somebody is goading you from the left, and then you say, I think I choose to go to the right. You don't really choose. You've been pricked on the left side, and then you turn right to run away from the pain. And that is not really a choice. It's only the illusion of a choice. That's why the Hindu tradition is pretty rough in this way. It says we live on a prison called planet Earth, and you are obliged to reincarnate. And this reincarnation takes you sometimes in happy places, and sometimes it takes you in very unhappy and painful places. And because of this, whatever you have to look for is freedom, liberation. This liberation... As described in India, it is a liberation from karma. And it is a liberation from the process of evolution. Because why do we have karma? Why are we obliged to reincarnate? Because by reincarnating, we pay our previous karma and we learn very valuable lessons. And lesson after lesson, 
we learn morality, we learn ethics, we learn compassion, we learn communion with everything. And it comes through a lot of painful experiences and sometimes it comes through pleasant experiences as well. And that's why all this uh, necessity for the human beings to reincarnate, which makes them prisoners, is actually in the name of evolution. Evolution is called in Indian standards Kali, the transforming power of time. And the only way to reach enlightenment, therefore, is liberation, which means Kali doesn't need to do anything to you anymore. You have stepped out of the jurisdiction of Kali, which means you surpass time. Liberation is also an expression of the timeless, because the only being that is liberated is a being that doesn't undergo the vicissitudes of time. As long as there is time, the clock is ticking, you have to go forward, you have to transform, and therefore you have to evolve. That's why all of them, but you see, each one of them is expressing a different thing. Some people say, you didn't touch me, Swami, before you spoke about freedom. Because for me, freedom means everything, and I really want to be free. Nirvana didn't talk about it properly. Christian saintliness didn't talk about it properly. But I like the freedom angle to it. And that's why... In, uh, in ascetic Hinduism, this liberation that they are talking about is literally almost like a prison break. It's like we give you the map of the prison, which is your body, and we tell you the door of the prison is in the top of your head. So if you manage to go out through this hole here, you will be free. That's the only gate which doesn't lead to further imprisonment. The way out is here. Even the chakras, even kundalini, even this knowledge of the body is just a way of defining a prison break. In asceticism, it's like you need to run. It's like a little bit like in Buddhism from this standpoint. And that's why ascetic Hinduism like Vedanta and others, they are a turn off for many modern people. Because many modern people say, I have a good life, I have a good body, and I'm really not, I don't see the need for a prison break. Yeah, I, there are pains. There are dissatisfactions, but I'm not that desperate. And that's why, remember that this prison break is only a way of putting it. In Hinduism, you don't have only the ascetic Hinduism. You also have the tantric tradition. And the tantric tradition, with the words of Sri Aurobindo, says, where are you running? If there is no enlightenment here and now, there is none. Like, what is this strange thing that you have to escape from a prison? There is no prison, ultimately, when you look at it like in the tantric metaphysics. And therefore, Tantra even complicates it, but makes it more palatable and beautiful, because Tantra says it's not about a prison break. Be here and now. There's nothing wrong with your body. There is nothing wrong with the planet Earth. But what the problem is, is the change of perspective. It's the change of the level of consciousness. When you have changed the level of consciousness and freedom is there, then who cares if that freedom is here and now or somewhere else? There is only one reality anyway. Here is forever. Here and now is the only thing which exists. And that's why the tantric tradition 
gives us another dimension. It shows another face of enlightenment. Many Hindu ascetics, they said, I have to go out of here. I'm not free. I'm in a prison. I have to stop my karma. I have to reach complete freedom from all this moksha and get the freedom to choose and all that. And then I have to go to the kingdom of heaven or to nirvana and there I will be free. But the tantric tradition, like Aurobindo said, Aurobindo said, I'm not trying to go into any kingdom of God. I'm trying to bring the kingdom of God here. Because the kingdom of God is centered around me. I am the one who is going there. So it can be here and now. I don't need to leave my body or go anywhere else. And he was right from the standpoint of the Hindu tantric tradition. Here is a story which I heard some 30 years ago. And I must admit when I heard it, it puzzled me. It took me a long time, months and years. And probably more than everything, it took me spiritual experience, after all, to really see the validity of it. Like, I understood the message, as probably you will understand it in a minute. But at the same time, it made me feel very insecure. It's like, you know, at least this clean cut that run away from here. This is Maya. Get out of Maya. You are not free. You are in a prison. It's very clearly cut and it's very motivating for any spiritual practitioner. But here is the story from India that uh, an ascetic, a sadhu, and a poet, a painter, a vagabond, they sleep under the same tree. They take refuge under a tree in a night, and then they sleep there. In the next day, each one of them had to continue their pilgrimage, their trip, wherever they were going. And so it happened that the tree was a sacred tree, and there was an oracle in that tree, and this oracle appears to them in... There are different versions of the story. In the dream, in the night, they have a vision. Or in the morning when they wake up, this spirit appears in front of them and says, not coincidentally, but marvelously, you slept into an altar. You slept in a sacred spot this night. And because of this, you've got the grace of God who can answer one question fully, clearly, totally for you. So you've got one question. And the, first, the ascetic immediately jumps and asks the question which was hurting him more because he was, he was in the course of a prison scape. He was breaking out of a prison. And he simply said, how long till I'll break out of this prison? How long more? Because I've been running and running. I've been standing on my head and meditating a lot. And how much more I have to go? And the oracle answers from the gods, six lifetimes. At which he starts wailing in agony. He says, six more, li like I thought you were, you were telling me six months or something. You know? Six lifetimes. Like I'll be born six times more and go through childhood and teenage and confusion. And I'll make lots of ascetic efforts and become celibate and do all those things. And it will take six, li like the goal is big indeed. But six lifetimes, six lifetimes is like, 500 years of living in six different bodies from now on. It's like it's a lot. He complained. And then the poet, bohemian, vagabond, whatever he was, like what he could ask, you know, he was so happy with himself. And he says, what about me? You know, like, let me ask a stupid question. What about me? At which the oracle duly answers. He says, it's about you. There will be so many lifetimes as leaves in this tree. And the story says that there were about 6,000 leaves, like thousandfold more than the other one. 
Like you've got to live a whole lot of time before you'll ripen for spiritual quest. And this wonderful spirit, he rejoices. He says, wonderful, 6,000 more times to come here and have fun. At which the oracle says, actually, that was just a sort of a last test to make the point, because you are enlightened as we speak. Like, when you don't care that there will be 6,000 more lifetimes, then you are ready to have the enlightenment because in the tantric way. Because in the tantric way, you know, Abhinava Gupta says, can you show me a place in the life or beyond the life, in the manifestation or in the non-manifestation where there is no Shiva? Can you show me a place where you are not with Shiva? Dead, alive, in the astral, in the physical, in the causal, wherever you go, is there a place where God is not omnipresent and there? So why are you wailing? Like there is no place which is with or without the divine consciousness. Therefore, you don't have to go anywhere. Enlightenment can be here for another 6,000 lifetimes. You are enlightened as you are. There is nothing to do. There is nothing to accomplish. This story is difficult to understand for beginners because it produces a sort of a loss of motivation, of confusion. Like all the other types of yoga, like they have a clear arrow pointing to the goal. But this one is like, a, so what's the conclusion, Swami? It means that it doesn't really matter. But still, spiritual practitioners do daily efforts. They meditate. They sublime. They work on their chakras. So, therefore, the tantric Hindu angle to all this, it enriches it because it speaks about liberation, but it speaks about a liberation which is here and now. And uh, I could continue with so many examples. Now concluding, because we are coming to the end uh, paragraph, concluding this because I gave you a few images about what spiritual realization is, seen as freedom, seen as knowledge, seen as awakening, seen as power, seen as bliss, seen as happiness, seen as intercession and compassion and annihilation and stopping of desire and so many other things which seem to be all of them simultaneous and more or less convergent with each other. Actually great yogis like Yogananda Paramahamsa is a typical example. They have even outlined that this liberation described by the yogis is a process which goes by stages and it's a sort of a three-stage process. In a paragraph which I'm explaining very much in detail in the metaphysical workshop, it's one of the big themes in the metaphysical workshop, of which there will be one happening this year. There I'm commenting on a text by Yogananda and explaining very clearly how Yogananda explains that the human being can be liberated by degrees, that the first liberation is not a total liberation. The first liberation that a human being experiences is a liberation from the physical world, from the planet Earth and any other physical planet existing in this galaxy or in this universe. Like you do not need to become a being made of flesh and blood when you have reached that one. You still exist, you are still lucid, you are free, you have got a much higher degree of freedom knowledge, lucidity, and other divine characteristics. And at the same time, you can exist 
without incarnating in a physical body and still be deliberate, lucid, have a purpose and continue your evolution. But, he says, that's not the complete liberation because your soul still exists like a spirit somewhere. And it means your soul is not completely free. Your soul is still encased. It's somewhere in the astral body. It's somewhere in the mental body. But that's not freedom. That's just that you moved at a higher floor on the same building. You are still in the building called samsara, only you live on a higher floor. And then there is liberation from the subtle worlds, from the astral and mental, which means you will still exist, but this time you will be like a deity, like a sort of divine spirit, controlling space, time, going in the causal world, altering space, time, being a demiurge, a sort of semi-creator of things, and becoming more like a deity, like Surya Deva, like the sun god, or something like that, and that will be an even higher existential status, and your freedom is going to be much bigger, and your vision, your knowledge, your satisfaction, and a lot of things are going to be so much bigger, but even that is not a complete freedom, because even the sun has a beginning and an end in this universe. It's not eternal to be the sun, and therefore, there is a step even beyond that which completely transcends space, completely transcends time, and that is the third level of enlightenment. That's why uh, many traditions admit this. In India, the Shaiva traditions from south, they describe that to become a Siddha, a perfected being, has five degrees. There are five degrees of Siddha. In the Tibetan Buddhism, there are ten degrees of Bodhisattvas. If you are a Bodhisattva uh, Buddha-to-be, there are 10 degrees of it, which means you, know, you can advance in degrees of that. And that's why this liberation is not a total process from the beginning. This liberation or enlightenment is a process which comes by degrees. Is it possible to get all of them in one go? It's exactly like you would ask if a child can get primary school, high school, and university in one go. It happens now and then with some miracle genius kids which have an incredible IQ and incredible. It does happen, but it's like one in a million or less. And that's why, of course, it's rare, but it does happen that human beings go through several levels of enlightenment at the same time. That's why what interests us mostly is what the, when, when we look at yoga, we we say, according to the Yoga Sutra of Patanjali, that Patanjali himself says that to reach moksha or mukti, you have to reach nirvikalpa samadhi. But Yogananda Paramahamsa, 25 centuries later, rounds up the statement of Patanjali and says, well, actually, what Patanjali means by that is that when you reach nirvikalpa samadhi for 30 minutes, you pass a certain threshold and there is no way back. You'll never relapse back from that level, exactly as you make an effort to climb on a gigantic staircase. And uh, you climb and climb and climb a vertical wall, and anywhere where you stop, if you relax and lose your grip, you fall back, and then you'll have to climb again. But once you get to the edge, and you go on the step, on the surface, then you can, <sighs> then you can rest, because you will not fall back. You have reached a thing, a place, from where you cannot fall back. And that is exactly what, Patanja, what Yogananda 
tells us about the states of samadhi. He says, the yogis have defined technically different states of samadhi and different durations of time. And when you reach nirvikalpa samadhi, that's like the first level of liberation. But Yogananda points at this and other great yogis point at it, Aurobindo and others. They say the state of samadhi, uh, nirvikalpa samadhi, cannot last forever. Because the state of Nirvikalpa Samadhi is described by Hatha Yoga Pradipika, a text of India, a text of Hatha Yoga, is described like your body turns into a log, a piece of wood, for those of you who don't know what a log is. It's like your body stops breathing, the heart stops beating, and you are going completely insensitive. You are gone into a state of void. The question is, can you stay there forever? Obviously not. So when you come out of that state, where do you relapse? Where do you fall? How do you do to maintain such states of consciousness permanently? And that's why, um, again, nirvikalpa samadhi cannot be maintained forever at the same time with this body. Because yogis from India say that if you spend more than 28 days in a row in nirvikalpa samadhi, your spirit separates from the body and they will find your body in the lotus pose, but you will be dead. You will be gone out of the body, which of course for you it doesn't matter because you are gone in ecstasy forever and ever. But at least from the standpoint of the world, it's a very confusing process. So you cannot stay in Nirvikalpa Samadhi forever because you will die. It's simply not compatible. If you want to be one with God, then what do you need this body for anymore when you are one with God? You cannot, this is like a prison, it's becoming a limitation and you don't need it after all. And that's why the tantric tradition says that a mediation has to be found, a mediation between the high states of samadhi and existence in this world. And that mediation is the superior levels of enlightenment and realization, which I'll call bhava samadhi or sahaja samadhi or unmilana samadhi in three different parts of India and three different traditions. And it means samadhi with the eyes open, which is much, much more rare. And it's a statement like that one of Jesus, that Jesus is talking to some people and he's even going against the grain with them. Like the discussion is not a kind discussion. The discussion is a kind of a rough discussion. And Jesus, although being on fire, no, although the discussion is heated, so obviously he's caught in an emotion. He says, for I and my father are like God, are one and the same. Jesus says, I am God. I am the same thing now while I'm talking to you. Not this morning while I was praying. Not when I was in Minervikalpa Samadhi yesterday. Now, I and God are one and the same. Which means either that Jesus is crazy and he doesn't know what he's talking about, and then he deserved to be committed into a mental institution because he was just nuts. Or if he indeed spoke the truth, then this is showing a state of consciousness which surpasses states of ecstasy or of enlightenment. This is not about being under a body tree and having a test. And then this is about being permanently in a state which mediates between heaven and earth in that midpoint where even the states of samadhi, even the states of ecstasy have been um, surpassed. Uh, a, a Shaivistic teacher 
said it beautifully. What is life when you can reach that level? Then he said, life is like you are still watching a magic trick into a circus, only that you know how it's done. You know the magic trick. And now you look, and it's still magic. Maya is still there. Everybody falls for it. And you are the one person in the circus who smiles, and he says, I know how it's done. It's a trick, no? and I know how the trick is done, and I'm kind of not impressed by it. Everybody is like, wow. I'm not wow, because it's a magic trick, and I've seen through this trick. No, I've been to the top of the mountain. I've seen the truth of everything. Now I'm here. I'm existing with my eyes open, but I've seen through all this trick. That's why the higher levels of this spiritual realization, I would like to continue so much more, but it gets late and there is no need. I just wanted to make clear some ideas about, again, even after this evening, maybe some of you are turned off and you think this is not on my plate or at least not in 2015 or something. You don't need to feel guilty. It's the whole point is that spiritual realization has to be defined properly so that people know what they are missing or what they are longing for. Spiritual realization says, therefore, that human beings in a year, in three years, in 12 years, in 20 years, or whatever it takes of precise spiritual practice, they can open their third eye and their crown chakra to such an extent that there will come a state of awakening, a state of satori, a state of consciousness, which makes you see, know, which makes you close to God, which makes you ecstatic, which makes you pure existence, pure consciousness, and pure bliss, which gives you freedom, which makes you see all your previous lives and stop the chain of reincarnation because it becomes unnecessary, which does all the things which I said in the last one hour and a half, and that state of consciousness results into an existential status. For some yogis, it requires that I want to go into it for a long, long time. For some yogis, it requires like I don't have to go anywhere. It's right here. I can experience it even while I'm doing the dishes. I can experience it while the magic show continues because the magic show is fine as it is. It helps other people to find their way by, first of all, imprisoning them and blinding them and creating the frustration and because of that frustration they will want to stand up and they will say enough is enough I want to do something so even in even the fact that we live on a prison it's good because it's like you squash somebody and sooner or later they will stand up and say enough so this squashing is just to provoke you just to make you stand up and blossom so I can allow this illusion to be because it's been created by the Creator and it has a purpose. It's a beautiful dream. Yes, sometimes it's not beautiful at all when three million people are killed in Cambodia's killing fields, or when a million Hutus are killed in Rwanda, or when a tsunami is coming and killing people, or when an airplane falls out of the sky. It's not elegant. It's not always happiness. It's a world of light and shadow. It's a world of yang and yin. It's 50% hill and 50% valley, and we have got everything in this world. It's, a, it's an agglomerate, it's a congregate, it's, a, it's a simply a conglomerate of things. It's an aggregate, 
it's a machinery, and that machinery has clockwise and counterclockwise, up and down, and pleasant and unpleasant. But the point of it is that ultimately the spiritual realization under the symbol of Shiva, the dancer, that's for the tantrics of Kashmir, the symbol of the enlightened soul. That the enlightened soul, they say, is like a dancing Shiva. Shiva is dancing. He knows what the game is. One of his hands creates universes. One of his feet stomps down and destroys universes. And universes keep being created and destroyed. And that's the law of the universe. Things come to manifestation and things go out of manifestation. And Shiva is smiling and dancing in the middle of all this cosmic caboodle. Because that's what's supposed to be. That's exactly what's supposed to happen. And Shiva is witnessing it, and more than witnessing it, dancing into it, participating into it, not being sad and not being happy. Because there is no need to be sad and happy if a new sun appears or if an old sun collapses and disappears. Suns are born and suns are dying, and this in itself, people are born and people are dying, and this is neither happy nor sad. We as human beings can think that there is a pain into this and a joy into that. But from the standpoint of the sun, try to think, if the sun is a gigantic deity, how many people did the sun see born and dying on the face of this earth in the last one million years? How many people did the sun himself kill by scorching them into the deserts of this planet? Does the sun cry? Does the sun laugh? Neither. It's, so, it's of so little importance to the sun that the sun continues dancing its cosmic dance. And Shiva, who is much, much beyond the sun, it's a much higher metaphysical reality, is the same. And that's why the meaning of spiritual realization at the highest level is as Shivananda in Aurobindo said, a divine life, a life divine. Because it's, it's not an invitation to this proverbial annihilation, extinction. It simply says you have to reach to a level to which you are doomed to reach. Even if you stomp your feet now and you're going to tell me, Swami, I promise, I swear, I will never make it to nirvana. I'm not interested. Fuck nirvana. I don't want it at all and so on. I can tell you already you are doomed to reach nirvana. There's no way around it. There's no way back from it. You can kick your feet in agony and still the wave of life is pushing you very slowly towards that end. And that's why, again, the spiritual realization of yoga is not different from life. Life is taking us all to come back to where we started from, to come back to the original, to reintegrate, to come back home and to be conscious and to be, again, pure spirit pure awareness. The only difference which yoga can make is a relative difference because it's a difference in time. Like some people are going to reach it in 10 years and some people are going to reach it in 10,000 years and some people are going to reach it in a million years taking thousands of lifetimes until they will get there. That's why it's all a relative difference. The spiritual realization is what we are given anyway. Only that the yogis are the people who say, if it's coming anyway, then why not today? Why not in this lifetime? Like, let's cut the crap. Let's get there already, and then let's dance. 
at least we will be awakened and danced like Shiva. So the spiritual realization is a way of reaching this awakening, getting rid of all the karma, getting power, grace, bliss, and all the things which were mentioned tonight. All of them and many others are included in this package. But the essential existential message is that the existence continues. The existence, sat, the pure existence of consciousness is endless. Consciousness never disappears. So spiritual realization means that you reach at the end of the movie before other people have seen the end of that movie. You, get, you reach at the end of your book faster because you are a faster reader. You have learned to read faster and you will reach the conclusion of it faster. And that's why most of the yogis think it's desirable. There may be people who say, you know what, Swami, from what you said, if I'm going there anyway, I'm not even interested to reach there too fast. I like to read my books slowly. Well, you are one of a kind, and everybody, the universe will respect your choice. But on the other hand, there are people who want the consequence, the conclusion, faster, because they like the part which comes afterwards, which is an eternal consciousness out of space and time. You can't measure it in time. And because it's out of time, it's beyond time. And it is a consciousness of witnessing. It's the dance of Shiva. It's becoming the universal dancer. That's truly what spiritual realization is. And remember, it's inevitable. When Yudhishthira, the oldest of the Pandavas in Bhagavad Gita, in Mahabharata, he is asked by Dharma, his father, as a test. And he is asked 20 very twisted questions. Very twisted. And the last of them is what is inevitable. And you all know the American answer to that. Americans think that inevitable is death and taxes. But Yudhishthira is much wiser than that. And Yudhishthira, when he is asked what is inevitable, he says happiness. And he passed. That was the right answer. It's not a silly answer. Because he simply said, what is happiness? Real happiness means ananda, bliss. Sat chit ananda. Pure existence, pure consciousness, pure bliss. It's the Holy Spirit. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It's one of the members of divinity. It's one of the facets of divinity. And Yudhishthira says, happiness is inevitable. Like it is inevitable that as I am called Swami Viveka Ananda, all of you will be one day an Ananda. All of you will be an Ananda person because you will have tasted of Ananda. Happiness, as Mahabharata goes, is inevitable. That's why the goal of yoga is not artificial and is nothing else than life. It is just the expression of some people who are practical and impetuous and they said, Let's cut the crap. We want it now. We want it here and now, not waiting another 5,000 lifetimes. Therefore, anybody who has this instinct chooses also the spiritual part of yoga. Because the spiritual part of yoga is not an absurd sectarian cultish purpose that the yogis discovered and they try to instill like a fanatic thing in the, in the heads of people. It's simply what is inevitable and what will happen anyway. And yoga says it can be a very beautiful trip. You don't need to do ridiculous things. 
yoga is a relatively modest effort. The first man who wrote a PhD on yoga, Professor Mircea Eliade, at that time in France, but later in the Chicago University, Mircea Eliade wrote in his book of yoga, in one of his books about yoga, not in his PhD thesis, he wrote and he said, it is very refreshing to think that it may take less effort in yoga to reach eternal life than it takes for somebody to become a great chess player, a statesman or a politician, an artist of world renown. It takes even less. Like we are told that Buddha, in the moment when he decided to go heroically for it, he sat under the Bodhi tree and he meditated about six years. Six years of meditation is not so much when you compare it to the outcome. The outcome is gigantesque because it is infinite and transcendental and it can't be even measured. It's beyond scope. And that's why uh, the yogis, the teaching of the yogis is whoever wants to see it faster is welcome to try. You can try. Either you succeed or not, it makes no difference really because life anyway takes us there. And if you try now and do half of the path, then in your next life you can try a little bit more and do the second half of the path and then you've done it in two stages instead of one. Nothing is lost. Everything is preserved because it's nothing else but your path. It's like you have to run 100 kilometers and if you run 50 now, then you've got 50 less left next time. And that's why spiritual realization is ultimately very common sense. It's not an absurdity. For many people, the search of spirituality is very fuzzy and it's like chasing illusions, chasing the rainbow. But the yogis, as my Indian guru told me, were always practical people. Like you have to be a practical person in yoga and to see what really can be done. Enough of this for tonight. I gave you an outline of this part of yoga. I didn't speak about health. I didn't speak about paranormal things. But I wanted to give a, a, a more wide perspective on this great idea of what is spiritual realization. The people who dare to raise their head and look into that, what are they aiming for? What are they trying to get? This is what they are trying to get. With this, we have concluded for tonight. Namaste to all of you. Thank you for joining. I think in the next uh, satsang, if my meditation goes in that direction, I will make a presentation of the yugas, of this theory of cosmic cycles, and with special emphasis on Kali Yuga, to make you understand, because often we get into this, that uh, people don't understand what's this story that comes from Indian and Tibetan yogis. And I will clarify that, but uh, that will be either next week or in one of the coming ones. Again, once more, namaste. With this, we have finished. This was a live recording of Swami Vivekananda Saraswati. For more information, visit us on agamayoga.com or go directly to agamayoga.com slash downloads.